Thanksgiving this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter number 20. The last of our messages in this series, Principal Parables. 17 messages, we divided it for a little bit of time in the spring to preach on the home. Well, I appreciate your ability, whether you had a heart to or not, your ability to stay with us as we went through uh, each of these principles. On the back of your handout, there should be a chart of all the parables that we preached through. You're welcome to see those. You can find the whole series if you want on the church's YouTube page, so long as it still stays up and they let us put it out there. But it's also on our church app and on our church website, independent from that other source. But we've looked at, or will have looked at, the end of the service this morning at 17 principal parables from the book of Luke. Let's read the parable this morning in Luke chapter number 20 and begin in verse number 9, read down through verse number 18. The Bible says, Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and let it forth to husbandmen. He went into the far country for a long and at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen, that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and he treated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they, by the way, the they here are the Pharisees and the scribes that are in the temple, when they heard it, they said, God forbid! He beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him out. Father, help us this morning as we now turn to the book. Your living word. May we understand the principles in this parable. Oh, it was directly given to these chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. There is no doubt about that. But there are principles for us as we gather in this place this morning as well. There's truths for us to know. I pray that we would understand them. And in understanding them, we would put them into practice. We would not just be hearers only, but we'd be doers of the word. Bless, I pray, in this hour. As we understand this principle this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke has two more parables that the Spirit of God would have him record for us here in chapters 20 and 21. Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 20, has entered Jerusalem and is presently teaching at the temple. A few weeks, if not a few days, before his arrest, before his trial, and before his crucifixion. His teaching ministry and all of the parables and principles that go with them is drawing to a close. 
If you would turn over and look in chapter 21 in Luke, and we'll just touch on that parable since I'm not going to preach on it this morning and in this series. And the reason, really, I'm not preaching on it is because it is prophetic in the sense that it has a fulfillment date when it will come true. Verses 20, or chapter 21, verses 29 through 36, Jesus gives a parable which deals with Israel being reestablished as a nation. And specifically, the proximity of that event to when Christ would set his foot back down on earth in his physical return. That parable, by the way, is playing out in our very day. The rapture precedes the tribulation, which precedes the return of Christ, which ushers in the millennial kingdom. And so as we read that parable, or if we were to study that parable, we would understand that what Jesus is doing is giving us a prophecy of what it will be like in that day. The principle from that parable, since this is our series, and I'll at least give it to you because as a pastor, I can't leave you wanting or leave you lacking. The principle from that parable in chapter 21 is this. Get right with Jesus before he returns. Amen. You say it's that simple? It's that simple. Yeah. Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse number 36. He says this, Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, you better be ready when I return. Amen. By the way, church, that message is good for us this sure. morning. When Jesus comes in the clouds to catch away his bride, we too of this age better be ready. It begins by knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior, but it also goes into living a life of sanctification that pleases him. In verse number 32 of chapter 21, Jesus notes that the generation which sees Israel reborn shall not pass until all is fulfilled, he says in verse 32. I believe that phrase, all be fulfilled to me, the all of the church age is done. The all of the tribulation period is complete. And the physical return of Christ in the establishing of his earthly millennial kingdom has come. In other words, Israel had to be reborn for that to happen. And friend, it is playing out in front of our very eyes today. Israel is reborn. Israel is established. There's a great debate and argument as to whether it was established in one day in 1948 or in the Six Days War of 1967, in either case, that generation is still alive. How many of you in here this morning were born on or before 1948? You don't want to raise your hand real high. Maybe you can. I don't know. Raise your hand real high. <laughs> Hallelujah. Good for you. All the ladies didn't raise their hand, and all of them pushed their husbands' hands up. <laughs> The parable in chapter 21 certainly is instructive, but the principle is essential to the whole of Jesus' message. Be right with God, and the only way you're right with him is through me. And so you're not preaching on that, Pastor? Not today, and not in this series. But that parable, the last of his parables in the Gospel of Luke, brings us back to our parable here in chapter number 20. The parable that Jesus gives to us in chapter number 20 is all about rejecting God. Those who reject God will pay the price for their rejection. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of them the Sanhedrin, they were against Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was going to mess up their good thing. They couldn't have. 
come back to our parable in this morning, immediately preceding the parable in verses 1 through 8, the chief priests, scribes, and elders of the temple demand Christ <coughs> explain on whose authority he does the things that he does. What an absurd notion. Yeah. Humanity demanding God explain both himself and his authority or his position. But that's what they do. Verse number 7, they answered that they could not tell whence it was. Jesus had talked about where the baptism of John had come from. In other words, you want to question my authority, I'll question your authority. In verse number 8, Jesus said to them, neither tell you by what authority I do these things. It is the preceding thought that leads into this parable. And so that's what sets the context of the parable itself. The principle that we'll know or learn this morning and need to know. Their problem, by the way, was not that they could not understand who Jesus was. All the signs were there. Yeah. Rather, the matter was that they would not acknowledge who he was. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you know who Jesus Christ is, and you refuse to acknowledge his place as God the creator, but also as God your savior, you, friend, are as in much trouble as these Pharisees in this passage of scripture. They rejected Jesus and thus rejected God's authority. The interactions, interestingly, that follow this parable also speak to authority. In verses 20 through 26, the Pharisees are trying to trap him on a question of earthly authority versus divine authority. They want to know, who do we give tribute money to? And Jesus essentially says, look, if it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. If it's God's, give it to God. Only he, divine wisdom, can answer in such a way. In verses 27 through 38, the power and process of resurrection life is questioned. The Sadducees, by the way, if you ever want to know how you keep them apart, what is the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection life. That's why they were sad, you see. That's the easy way to remember it, okay? But we understand here that they are asking him, hey, there's a woman, and she married, and her spouse died, and she married a brother according to Moses' law. And then he died, and she married another according to Moses' law, and he died. And they say, whose wife will she be in heaven? My wife hates this passage of scripture because Jesus' answer is, don't worry about the resurrection life, you'll enjoy it. But you won't be married. My wife often tells me, we may not be married, but my house is going to be near yours, and I'm going to chase you. All around heaven. <laughs> the only request she has is that our beagle, who is now 14, will not shed there. <laughs> In verses 39 through 47, Jesus questions finally their authority, or more specifically, religion's authority. He drives home the point that religion does nothing for you. In fact, all religion does is take things from you. Verse 46, beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts. Here's what they really are in their hearts, which devour widows' houses. They're just after their own possessions. And for a show, make long prayers. The same or those religionists who knew the truth but rejected the truth shall receive, he says, greater damage. Now, I don't know if your family is like ours. We love Adventures in Odyssey. Anybody else like Adventures in Odyssey? Anybody ever heard of it? And so I knew as soon as I read this parable this morning, my three sons who were sitting in here were going, Oh, is Dad going to do the Adventures in Odyssey sketch? No, I'm not. 
They have a wonderful Adventures in Odyssey if you want to listen to it. Even if you're a grown adult, it's wonderful to listen to. It's very funny. It's one of the funniest episodes explaining this parable that you'll ever hear. In fact, it's well worth your time. I say this because in my message this morning, I will not be referencing Matt Cartwood, Headlock Harry, Trigger Finger Troy, or Silver Saddle Slapper Stephanie. They are all in that story. Instead of taking a children's approach to the parable, we're going to take a principled approach. And look at the heart of rejection that precedes and ultimately permeates the people whom he is addressing in this parable. So as we jump into the preaching this morning, there are three sets of twos in this parable. And we begin first with the two rejections in verses 9 through 13. The direct audience, the intended audience for this parable is Israel. Make no mistake about that. Jesus is in Jerusalem, the last presentation of himself to the nation of Israel, and their possible reception of him as their king, as their Messiah, as the one who would come, the Christ, the anointed one, comes and it goes. They betray him and they crucify him. But he is here presenting himself. Make no mistake, this parable is directed at them, but there are still principles that we can learn in it. Mankind as a whole can be seen in the parable. Israel was given the law. They were given the prophets. They were given the Messiah. It was to them that these things were particularly given. They were God's chosen people, but today we live in an age of grace. We understand then that there are things that we must do and truths that we must know. Israel and perhaps you this morning are guilty of these two rejections that Jesus deals with. Letter A, if you'll notice, is the rejection of his servant, the, re the rejection of God's servant. A certain man planted a vineyard, verse 9 says, and let it forth to husband. In other words, he gave the management, the stewardship of that creation, of that possession to husbandmen. There is no clearer picture of what God did in the garden than in this parable. In uh, extension of that, as it applies to Israel, it was through Abraham, ultimately Isaac, and then Jacob, who became Israel, and his 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes, that God chose out a people to place his name there. It is to them that we find the vineyard let out too. The Bible says in verse number 10, And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandman, that they should give him, that is to God, to the, to the Lord or the master of the vineyard, the certain man here, that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. In other words, God has an expectation for his creation. That's what is being taught here. So we find then that in the series of these three servants, there is an outright rejection by the husbandmen of those truth tellers whom God had given to Israel. May I ask this question this morning? How do you handle truth tellers of the word of God in your own life? You see, the principle for Israel is no different than the principle for us. There are men who stand in this desk week after week, Sunday after Sunday, service after service, who take this book and tell forth the truth of this book to you. What do you do with that truth? That's the principle in this parable. From Moses through John the Baptist, Israel was given nearly 1,500 years of prophets. Their task was to tell forth the truth of God, not sugarcoat it, not confuse it, not deny it. 
The servants were chosen vessels by God and from God, whom God would select. And in the case of Jeremiah, we, are, we read, from his mother's womb, he was selected for that task. They were chosen for the task of telling God's people the truth, and nothing but the truth, as you say under oath. Israel failed miserably in heeding the prophets. Moses called them stiff-necked people. Samuel pronounced judgment on a half-hearted King Saul. Elijah and Elisha were unyielding opposition to King Ahab. Nathan, Gad, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the minor prophets were all those speaking to Israel in their rejection of God. And we find God gives three categories of servants, or at least three examples of servants here. Point is that God has always had his servants prepared and called to tell the truth. I stand before you this morning not as a prophet of the Old Testament who can tell the future truth. I can tell you the former truth and the present truth as to how it must be. Telling the truth to repent, to change, to live godly, to live righteous in this present generation. In other words, my responsibility as a servant of God and a truth teller this morning is to say to the sinner, stop. To the one who is far from God, come back. Those who are, depart are tempted to depart from the truth, don't. That's what the prophet's job was for Israel, and they rejected him. You get the point then in the principle this morning. If truth is preached and you turn your back on it or you refuse to respond to it, you are no different than those who are questioning God's authority in this passage. Right. You're no different. Israel rejected God's servants in verses 9 through 12. But then we find letter B, they rejected God's son. And it is one thing to reject his servants. They are not him. But his son is his heir. He's of his own substance. He's of his own likeness. In verse 13, the Bible says, Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? By the way, this parable given by Jesus gives us a wonderful look into the heart and mind of Almighty God. He wants to save mankind. Amen. He wants to be glorified by his creation, this world, this universe, and specifically mankind is special creation in this world. He says effectively, what shall I do? This is not the omniscient God confused. This is the omniscient God speaking frankly. What should I do about this? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. That the inheritance may be ours. They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And the rhetorical question from Jesus, the question that God asks each of us that reject his servants and ultimately reject his son, what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Who were they rejecting? Paul said this to the Colossian believers in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. The him here is direct reference to Jesus Christ. All things were created by him and what? For him. 
He is before all things, and by him all things consist. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in chapter 1, verses 1 and, one and 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, his servants, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Exactly what Jesus is talking about in this parable here. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things. By whom, this is a wonderful additional phrase, just kind of a thrown in line here, but it's a descriptor of who Jesus is. By whom also he made the world. That's who Jesus Christ is. And that's who they were rejecting. May I suggest to you this morning, may I bring before your attention this morning, that if you reject Jesus Christ in this life, you are effectively saying to God, I don't want anything to do with you. Friend, be careful. For when you declare that time and again to God, there will come a time in the end where he will declare that to you. Depart from me. I never knew you. It's one thing to reject God's messengers, but it is another matter altogether to reject God directly. Jesus Christ is God the Son. By the way, religion hates losing their power. That's the problem here. Religion is fine with you acknowledging a God, but they don't want you in a relationship with the God of heaven. That's what he's dealing with in this passage. This is not an accidental neglecting of God either, according to verse 14. The husbandmen saw him. They reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. At the heart of their rejection is the lie that Lucifer himself believed in his perfection in heaven. I will be like the Most High God. I want to be the authority in my life. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, that's just what you think, pal. No, that's what this book says. From Genesis to Revelation, it never works out when you are your own authority. But if you will receive, repent, and submit yourself under the authority of Almighty God, oh man, then there is a life to be lived. And there's joy to be had. These husbandmen believed that they could kill the son and inherit the vineyard. They could and would become their own God in their own eyes. Jesus asked that wonderfully penetrating question in verse number 15. What shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? What would you do if you were the Lord of the vineyard? And the husbandmen had killed intentionally your son. Yes, those who reject God and never repent will be rejected by God. Here's what he says in verse 16. He, that is the Lord of the vineyard himself, shall come and destroy these husbands and shall give the vineyard to others. By the way, as the church, we are sitting here as beneficiaries of their rejection. Paul has a wonderful explanation of this if you study Romans chapter 10 and 11. There is a process as to a branch that is cut off and one that is grafted in. We live in that dispensation. We live in that age. We live in that stewardship. And by the way, that too will come to a close. If he loved the first branch and when it disobeyed, cut it off, and the second that is grafted in disobeyed, friend, there's no hope for this world that reject Jesus Christ. We find two rejections in this parable, but second in our outlines, we also find two lines of reasoning. Two reasonings in verses, thir through, verses 13 through 16. The first line of reasoning that we find is, letter A, the hope of God. I, I want you to see that in this parable because the parable itself, as we'll get to at the very end, 
It's pretty bleak if you're a rejecter of God. But what I want you to see in the parable and what Jesus intentionally gives to us in the parable is that God himself is hopeful that mankind will repent. By the way, I'm just going to be brutally honest. The most ardent atheist, the most defiant person that you can find out on the interweb of, of the universe that would be making videos against God and cursing his name. If they actually stood in the fullness of his glorious presence, number one, they would not survive. But number two, they would immediately fall down and worship him. The problem, and I say it only tongue-in-cheek, the problem is they don't see him. By the way, there's a wonderful side lesson. Free preaching this morning. You and I are the body of Christ. The reason they don't see the glory of God is because they don't see the glory of Jesus Christ in us. Was that in this parable? Oh, that's pastoral freedom right there. <laughs> Back tonight, we're preaching on Christian liberty. You'll really like that one. <laughs> I'm encouraged at the hope God has towards Israel being saved and humanity being saved. His hope that they would turn back to him. It isn't naivety here on the part of God that this parable displays, but rather true and genuine desire, hope. God's genuine hope is that his creation would welcome him, would want him, would walk with him, would be one with him. God's purpose in creating Adam was that a free will race would choose of their own volition to live in a relationship with him. He's the master maker. He could have easily created anything, but he created us as the pinnacle of the creative order. That's the hope that we see, that we would choose to obey him. We would choose to serve him. We would choose to please him. His design of humanity is that we must choose, ultimately. And his hope, his patient longing, is that we would freely choose to serve him, that we would freely choose to love him as he freely loves us. The rejection is hurtful and hateful to him. Yet God still loves mankind with an agape love, a sacrificial love. What wonderful instruction, by the way, that is for us. Those who have, been, who have by faith received his grace of salvation. If God can try and try and try to reach mankind and hope that all could be saved, we should too. Amen. And yet so often as Christians, what do we fall track to? Well, that group's never going to be reached. Let's write them off. Good luck. I don't want them walking in our doors. Heaven forbid that's ever the belief in this place. It's ever the thought in our hearts. If God longs for mankind to turn from their trespasses and sins, then we too as believers should hope for the same thing. But Pastor, I know better. I know they're not going to turn from their sins. Yeah, so does God. But it doesn't change his hope. The problem that we have in this age is far too many Christians are on this side of the ledger. Even some mortgages. It can't get any worse for me. My 401k is nosediving. My house is falling apart. There's nothing that can be done. Our cities are trash. The country is going to waste. And somewhere over here in China... A little Christian hiding in a hobble hole in a home church says, oh, yeah, you got it bad. 
You see, sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. Kyle, do you want our country to fall apart quickly? I'm a Christian American. As a Christian, I understand there's hope, but that hope usually has to shine the brightest when things are the darkest. Our goal is not to damn people to hell. They are condemned already, the Bible says in John chapter 2. Our job is to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying. His foremost desire is found at the end of verse number 13. It may be, he says, that they will reverence him. Did God know that they wouldn't? Yes, he knew they wouldn't. But his hope, his desire, his plan and purpose did not change. He says it may be that they will reverence him. Notice when they see him. Church, that's our responsibility, that the world can see Jesus Christ in us. And through us. You find letter B, the second line of reasoning, is not the hope of God. Would to God, that's how we all live. But letter B, the hatred of the guilty. Listen, the hatred in this parable is palpable. I mean, it is written all over the pages of it. In every line, we can see these husbandmen hate God. May I say to you, that speaks to the very nature of man. When Adam sinned in the garden and we realized in eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we learned what evil was. And our flesh loves darkness rather than light. That these husbandmen are guilty, I think from the parable, is beyond doubt. They beat the first servant. The second servant they treat in a disrespectful and disgusting way. The third they wound mortally. By the way, I think that third reference is to John the Baptist. And you say, wounding mortally? They cut off his head. That's right, but they didn't take his eternal life. Life is in Christ. Life is in God. And John the Baptist was serving God. He was preaching repentance in the kingdom. When his head was taken, he only had to wait a few mere probably months, if not years, until Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And then he was in that group from Ephesians chapter 4 that was the captivity that was led captive, that went with Jesus only to glory. The point is, is that they couldn't take his eternal life or his everlasting life from him, for that is given to us by God in our, when we have faith in his demonstration of grace. Finally, we see they killed his son after hatching an insurrection. And yes, this is the right actual use of the word insurrection. These actions do not speak of ignorance, but rather of malevolence in this passage. Let me ask a basic question here in this point. I think all of us are going to say no as soon as I ask it, but I want you to think on it. Do you hate God? Of course, no. I mean, if anybody said yes, the altar's open, you come ahead now. <laughs> but consider your actions this week. Consider your language. Consider your thoughts. I love the little kid's song. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's a really good reminder. If we are violating God in any of those things, we are not showing a love for him. And if we're not showing a love for him, the opposite of that is what? It's showing that we really don't love him at all. Tends toward hatred. Yeah. If we're the friend of the world... The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, if we're friends of the world, then we're enemies of God. 
How do you treat God's son and his servants has a direct correlation to what you think of God. It'll help you answer that question. Do I hate God? I don't know, Pastor. I like the wristband that says, what would Jesus do? Not the wristband that says, do I hate God? Maybe that would be a good one to wear so that we realize in every one of our actions, what is this saying about what I'm doing? God's ultimate response to hatred towards him is, is destruction in verse number 16. God's long-suffering patience towards hatred and wickedness is in keeping with his hope for more souls to be saved. The reason he endures, if you will, all of the wretchedness that we find all around us is because he longs for that next soul to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I believe that patience, by the way, is wearing thin. If God would destroy Israel for turning their back on their God, he will do the same to any nation or people who openly divide his truth and his word. Open hatred towards him, his son, and his servants does not bode well for this world. Judgment is coming. Our job is not to cheer it on, but as I said, it is to rescue those who are dead already. Rescuing the perishing. The book of Revelation records those that are martyred. Those already in heaven who can no longer witness for him. They are the ones that are allowed to cry, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? But we never find that those of us still living are allowed to say that. Our mission is to reach them for Jesus Christ however we can. It is interesting as well at the end of verse number 16. The Pharisees interrupt the parable. This is one of the few parables we find in all of Luke that is interrupted. They cannot take anymore. And so they interrupt Jesus and they say, God forbid. The Pharisees answered Jesus with a rebuke. Jesus is rebuking them for their rejection of him. And they rebuke and reject him in that teaching. Couldn't be any more clear who these people are. They literally say to God that they know God would never do something like what Jesus just said. That's what we find in that verse. God just said this is how it's going to be. And they say to him, God would never let that happen. It just speaks to their rejection of who he is. There are two rejections given, two reasonings given. And Jesus concludes the teaching of the parable with two realities. Verse number 17, it says, And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. He's quoting Psalms and other passages. Whosoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind into powder. Now, in first listening to that or first reading of that, you think, I don't know that either one of those is really a good scenario. Right? To our natural human mind, we're like, okay, so one of them is going to fall on the rock and be broken. And the other one, the rock is going to fall on them and they're going to be crushed to dust. That's what it means to grind to powder. There's the idea of a woman in her kitchen in that day taking the leaves or taking that, that uh, uh, seasoning out of the field and taking the stone and just crushing and crushing and crushing until all that's left is just a fine dust. No resemblance to what they were before. No understanding of it at all. The realities are very stark here. 
Interestingly enough, we find in verse number 19, the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, immediately, in other words, sought to lay hands on him in the ear of the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Well, at least their perception was good. Nothing else about them seems to be very good. But their perception was right. Have you ever had a situation like that where somebody's teaching and preaching and you're like, I think he's talking about me. Maybe you had that feeling just this morning. Here's what Jesus says in verse number 18. Either you surrender to God or you will be destroyed. I think. I think somewhere, if you're here visiting us this morning, or if you're watching online, the lovey-dovey, touchy-feely believer's head probably just exploded. Jesus loves me. He's just love. He does love you. And he gave himself for you. But what he says here is that if you ultimately reject him, he's going to crush you. Can't you dress it up better than that? No, I just actually gave you Jesus' word. They're philosophers of the lovey-dovey, touchy-feely church. And they're theologians. When they read this passage, are rapidly trying to reword Jesus' words here. Probably in Bible version number 39 or something like that. <laughs> Jesus makes himself the pivot point. He is reality, we could say. If we understand who he is from our first point... That he is the creator of the world, but also for each of us who have asked him to save us, our savior in this world, or we might say from this world. We who understand that, we understand the reality of the eternal matters rather than just the temporal. We understand that Jesus is the hinge of history. He's the pivot point. And that's what he's saying here. Look, there's only two choices that you can make. You either fall on the stone or the stone falls on you. Two realities that Jesus sets begin first with faithful surrender, Mother Ann. This is what God wants. He wants the creature to recognize and surrender to him, the creator, and I would argue, savior of mankind. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is the reality God would have for every human being. There is life, there is light, there is love, there is joy, there's contentment and satisfaction, and a host of other truths from the New Testament that we receive when we fall upon Jesus alone. He gives us all that pertains to life and godliness. He gives us all the benefits of being brothers of his. You do not come to Jesus as a gift to him. That's what Jesus is saying. You come repentant and desperate to receive his gracious gift of salvation. You fall on him and you are broken. Now that doesn't sound very affirming. No, it is not. It is very transforming though. When you realize there is nothing good within you. And you fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ alone. The rock of our salvation. The hymn writer says. fall upon the rock and are broken by that rock. The beautiful reality is that when you are broken, Christ and his Holy Spirit will regenerate, will renew, will reshape and reform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ himself. 
to the fullness of life that he would have for us. It begins, however, with you falling upon Jesus, hopeless in your own strength, hoping only in his. The second reality is in final spoiler. The phraseology that Jesus uses here is very similar to the Roman cry in conquest. To the victor go the spoils. In other words, he's saying to them, look, if you don't fall upon the rock, if you don't fall upon the stone that is set at naught of the builders, if you do not fall upon me and the gracious gift of salvation that I'm bringing, the truth that I'm revealing, if you do not fall upon me, then to the victor go the spoils, and you're not winning. A.D. 70, Jerusalem would fall stone by stone. It would be torn apart. These Pharisees and their children, those that were coming up through the schools after them, just 40-some years later, they would fall before Rome. They temporally, or on this earth, in the temporal realm, would be spoiled. But Jesus' point is far bigger than this temporal realm. He's saying, look, if you reject God, you will be spoiled for the rest of eternity. You'll be taken out of life, yeah. out of love, out of life. It has been, for nearly 2,000 years, a truth that Israel has been spoiled. And I don't mean that in a spoiled brat of a child mindset, meaning literally in victorious battle and conquest, they were spoiled. Truly, when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, it is true. And yet in our day today, we want God to exact vengeance, revenge us of the wrongs that we perceive. And the answer is, that day is coming, but not today. God's love will ultimately, however, reach a point of termination for those who reject him. I would say to each gathered here this morning, if you leave this world without asking Jesus Christ to save you, your hope is gone. The stone has fallen upon us. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment, the writer of Hebrews says. Rejecting God, this parable teaches, leads to utter and complete separation from God. The eternal state of those who reject God by rejecting Jesus Christ will be the lake of fire. How do you know that? Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Stop and get that picture. Christ is upon his throne in full glory, passing full judgment. The stone himself is falling. And all who have rejected Jesus Christ... The Bible says that literally the elements of heaven and earth want to flee from that glorious presence. Sometimes we dumb down or minimize who God is. The Bible never does. It tells us who he is. And there was found no place for them. There's no hiding from him in that day. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast, where? Into the lake of fire. This is the second death. 
Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This God is not hateful. He is just. When we read that passage in Revelations, it is not ours to get our blood boiling and pointing it at the worst sinner we can imagine at that time. We should be terrified for them. But that is their doom. Jesus says that if you reject him, if you will not yield to him, if you will not surrender and fall upon him, if you will not repent and receive him in full surrender, your end will be spoiled by the God of the universe in a fashion beyond what you and I could even begin to imagine. Again, I remind you of the hope of God. He does not long to do that, but he must do that. If he does not, he is a liar, and he is unjust, and that is not the God of the Bible. So in closing this morning, what have you done with the truth of Jesus Christ? What have you done with what you know about who he is? You see, these Pharisees, these men of the temple, these religious leaders, they knew the truth. In fact, they knew the truth better than most people, but they rejected who Jesus was. Pharisees would not release their traditions, their religions, their own personal power, or the desires of their own flesh. Instead of falling upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, their generation was crushed. They lost everything, both in this life and in the life that was after. This morning, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's me doing my job as a servant of God, a messenger, a truth teller. If you're here and you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you, boy, there's not a better day to do it. The only day I can think that would be better to ask Jesus to save you than today was yesterday. But if you didn't do it, then do it now. Don't reject him any longer. To the believers gathered in this place this morning, Live a life of purpose in a world who both arrogantly and perhaps ignorantly are rejecting Jesus Christ. Yes, it is a fallen world. And when we get to heaven, we'll have a lot to talk about with Brother Noah. Because he saw all sorts of wickedness. I am convinced the wickedness of the days of Noah are present in ours. As they've never been since that time. But live a life of purpose. Live according to the word of God. Live not to your best standards. Live in surrender to him. Fall upon that rock. Yes, it's for salvation, but may I suggest to you, the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we add to our faith, that falling upon the rock the first time, we add to our faith virtue. The next word is virtue. We fall upon that rock day by day by day. We just continually surrender to Jesus. Where he leads me, Father, help us this morning as we close.